and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is a Tuesday, June the thirteenth. Juneteenth, 2006. George Bush is making a guest appearance in Baghdad today. Yes, a little photo op, a flyby. Oh, my God. <laughs> the Congress. Oh, the Congress is playing pin to tail on the pansy. I, when I left the house today, I was listening to uh, Vice President Cheney's daughter in an interview, and my head just started to spin, and I thought, you know, this is not my century. This is not my year. I grabbed my favorite book by the great lesbian writer Breyer, B-R-Y-H-E-R, and I'm going to spend most of today telling you all about her. She was the partner of H.D. Uh, I need to escape. I am an escapist. That's cowardly, I know. I've spent most of this past week in the 19th century, especially in the movies and the books. Of course, they're not really about the 19th century, but I can practice my illusions. Yes, we're nothing but illusion factories. I want to disappear into the past. Anyway, I want to try to get some perspective on these times. What is the... What is the mantra? Yes, study history. Learn your place in time. What was that Gertrude Stein line? I love Gertrude Stein. She would say, uh, uh, my students didn't like this one, but uh, her little line went, uh, let me recite what history teaches. History teaches. That was the end of it. Uh, I don't know what my my favorite for our our day today is history happens. Now this memoir that I'm telling you about is by a fascinating woman named uh Briar Wright and her original name, let me look it up here for you, was Annie Winifred Ellerman. No wonder she changed it. Annie Winifred Ellerman. Born 1894, died 1983, born in England, spent most of her life uh, in Switzerland, London, so forth. Uh, novels and memoirs received critical praise, blah, blah, blah. But uh, Paris Press tells us that her work has been neglected during the past 30 years, and I'm going to write and ask them for copies of this memoir for the next marathon, because I think it's just terrific. There's an introduction by Patrick Gregory, and an afterward uh, 
She's written a lot of novels, which I have dabbled with. There's one that um, is all about, it's called The Player's Boy. It's all about someone living in Shakespeare's time. A little too esoteric for my taste. The memoir is what I find fascinating. She has this very grounded, earthy way of looking at things. Her takes on people like Yeats and Ezra Pound. She makes you see them in all their ordinary, um, what would we call that? Um, their, um, it's the sort of thing, what is that? Uh, she, she notices, um, you know, whose glasses are dirty. That's, that's the sort of thing that I like about her work. Uh, she is a benefactor. She's the partner of H.D. Hilda Doolittle. Uh, she hung out with Marion Moore. Let's see, politics, film, psychology, literature. She was a publisher, contact publishing. Um, and, of course, she helped to support the uh, intellectual sanctum in Paris, Shakespeare and Company. You remember Sylvia Beach's bookstore. Um, in any case, um, what I like about this woman is that uh, she, what's the word? Um, I don't want to call her a visionary. She was one of those young people who wanted to change the world. She was uh, eight years older than my parents. My parents were born in 1902. I think of her as, yes, that generation, uh, such wonderful, I guess I have to say innocence, uh, Innocence is what it's all about. Um, she she writes so much about World War One. She says for her that was so much more intense than World War Two. And then the yes, the Spanish flu, the epidemic. Uh, I think it was because she was so young during the First World War. Uh, she is of course an Edwardian. She's with the generation that had the task of finishing off the Victorian age. Uh, she points out that the Victorian age was not a golden age at all, that it was uh, unbelievably cruel in certain uh, respects. Uh, I've been reading her memoir all week, and it's a time trip. I love to look at life through the eyes of someone who is still hopeful, Someone who imagines, you know, that the next generation is going to bring about uh, great changes and save us all. She's hopelessly enthusiastic. Uh, she wants to reform society, get rid of the bad education. Uh, she wants, of course, everybody to be an artist. <laughs> she is, of course, a feminist. That goes without saying. Uh she spent so much of her childhood in the East, in Egypt, um, the Arab culture she loves until she's 15. At 15, she said she realized fully uh, what that world was like for women. And uh, somehow or another, that, um, that broke the back of her romance with uh, the East. At 15, she was also yanked away from her art, her art lessons, and shoved into uh, a girls' school. Apparently, her family thought that um, she needed to be grounded. Uh, she's looking to the future with passion and hope. Let's see. I'd like to... What I thought I would do today is just 
read you some little bits and pieces to see if um to see if you can get the flavor of what she's all about uh what i like is her ordinariness i guess uh, it's so hard it's like trying to find someone whose past is uh like my present uh here she's running into gertrude stein reminds me of the first time i met a certain poet anyway she's in paris at this point and she's married to robert mccallman she had two marriages of convenience uh to men yes one sunny afternoon we that would be uh briar and her husband robert mccallman were walking down one of those obscure streets that were so familiar to me through many French stories. The chimneys hid much of the sky, the gray facades concealed a dozen disenchanted heroes full of scruples. The road itself was like the connective word in a sentence, necessary but colorless. With nothing in it to disrupt the attention, suddenly a high, old-fashioned car drew up beside us, Two penetrating eyes in a square, impassive face seemed to be absorbing every detail of my appearance. A puzzled voice remarked, Why, McCallman, you did not tell me that you had married an ethical Jewess. It's rather a rare type. <laughs> Footnote here, Gertrude Stein was, of course, a Jew. And... Uh, Briar goes on to write, All my ancestors had been English Protestants or German Lutherans, but you did not argue with Gertrude Stein. You acquiesced. The Jewish suggestion linked up to the East, but I did not care for the ethical. Anything that smacked of morals was suspect. Still, I was searching. How had she guessed this? For a form of absolute truth. I took it, therefore, as a compliment and nodded. She talked a few minutes to McAlman, invited us both to tea, and drove off in her famous Ford, a jolly little dinosaur riding down the sands of time. <laughs> I will repeat that. I have a file, a card file, with descriptions of Gertrude Stein from uh, everyone, everywhere, different times and places and this is a new one I'm going to add to my collection yes Briar describing Gertrude Stein as a jolly little dinosaur riding down the sands of time she goes on to say apart from Shakespeare and company it is the long room in the Rue de Flor uh, that I remember most from my Paris visits Again, a footnote, that's Gertrude Stein's home where she lived with Alice Toklas. It was full of paintings, but what I noticed, it must have been some trick of the lighting, was that the atmosphere seemed full of gold. There was a table piled with books, and beyond this a high chair, where Gertrude sat, surrounded by a group of young men. At first, there was a little general conversation. Then, she would pick up a phrase and develop it, ranging through a process of continuous association 
until we seem to have ascended through the seven Persian heavens and in the process to have turned our personalities inside out. Make no mistake, however, it was not an ego selfishly seizing the stage. It was rhetoric, spare and uncolored by emotion. She offered us the world, took it away again in the following sentence, only to demonstrate in a third that it was something that we could not want because it had never existed. How bitterly I regret that there were no tape recorders then available to preserve her disputations. Gertrude had no use for me, but she did not dislike me. I had nothing to offer her in the way of intellectual stimulus, and, unlike her young men, brought her no personal problems. I knew this, and so, whenever I could, I slipped away to join Miss Toklas in her corner. It was never Miss Stein, but Gertrude from the first meeting, but only very intimate friends called Miss Toklas Alice. Her dignity subdued the rawest, most boisterous youth. I wondered why she had not been more often painted. Under an apparent repose there was such a glowing quality of life. She had subordinated her own gifts to looking after her friend, yet they never grew to resemble each other, as often happens in such cases. Her own personality was intact. I left the others busy with their speculations while I listened to stories of her childhood in a remote California valley that she transformed as she spoke into some Jules Verne Island, yes. Ah, mysteriously she drifted among mountains instead of seas. I wish Gertrude had written more about these beginnings in the autobiography, but I suppose uh, they did not touch her essentially modern mind. Occasionally we ventured to slip away into the kitchen to discuss the shops, uh, the shops that sold the best vegetable seeds. We were both gardeners. We talked of the hardships of some French servant who had neither parents nor adequate wages to protect her. Once we were sharply reproved by Gertrude for leaving her circle, I am afraid that while I had a profound admiration for Gertrude, it was Miss Toklas whom I loved. She was so kind to me. Perhaps this came from her long practice, as Gertrude wrote, quote, of sitting with the wives of geniuses, unquote. <laughs> but it was very pleasant. Ah, and at the Rue de Fleurs, if I were not with Adrian and Sylvia, uh, the only place in Paris where I felt at home, yes, was with Alice. Okay. She goes on to say, I read some of the magazines of the period over again recently. It is Gertrude's work that now seems to me the most alive. It is not dated. She was a scientist and one of the few among us who had almost entirely freed herself from the past. 
Her attack on language was necessary. Helped us all, even if we did not follow her. Some of her books were both so simple and so profound that we can read them whether we are 18 or 80. The rest of her work is experimental, highly technical, and should be reserved for specialists. It is a measure of the decline of real learning that some people today have questioned her genius. <laughs> Briar goes on to describe uh, how she bombed with the boys, yes, Cocteau's expression of horror, uh-huh. the glamour girl Nancy Cunard, yes, cafes where, uh, mm-hmm. yes, she, she said yes, places for men and for decorative women. She was obviously not a decorative woman. Then she goes on to tell all about Man Ray and these folks. Uh, Paris in the 20s is a fun, fun section. Uh, <laughs> she describes Man Ray's studio as a huge bare room furnished with a staircase that led to a narrow gallery at the height of the first floor. He was explaining one of his photographic plates to me one day when a door in the gallery opened. I, I looked up to find Kiki, literally a, quote, nude descending the staircase. She was attired in a couple of soap bubbles and a wisp of towel tied where she did not need it around her neck. I was firmly in favor of nudity on the beaches, but my training in etiquette at school had hardly prepared me for such an encounter in town. Impassively, I hoped, but heartily, I shook Kiki warmly by the hand and remarked that the weather had favored us. It was a sunny summer day. <laughs> she likes to write that way. Uh, trying to prove that she was never shocked. What I love is the fact that there's always a woman named Kiki in these stories. Um, <laughs> let me read you a little bit of the introduction to give you more background in case there's someone in KPFA's audience who is interested in what I would call, what is that? Uh, not the obscure past, but... This woman reminds me of the pleasure I get when I read, oh, uh, Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, a writer who was a friend of uh, Charlotte Bronte. And she wrote all these wonderful descriptions of Charlotte Bronte at home with her father. And it gives you all these insights into the uh, backstage life of the great writers, uh, Yes, this is covering the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. She lived to be quite old. Her partner was the uh, poet Hilda Doolittle. They lived together in Switzerland. Just let me read you just a little bit of the bio so that uh, I feel you've been introduced to this writer. Uh, this memoir has been out of print for a long time, and I just got the uncorrected proof in the mail. It's called A Writer's Memoirs by Briar, and she titled it The Heart to Artemis. I can't remember where she put her head, but she said her heart went to Artemis. Uh, as I say, uh, she was a, uh, a lesbian, a lover of uh, H.D. She was born in England in 1894, daughter of Sir John Ellerman. 
a prominent industrialist. Her early education was unconventional, highlighted by lengthy travels in France, Italy, and the Near East. This upbringing awoke in her a lifetime passion for beauty, for history, archaeology, psychology, and travel. Her formal schooling began at 15. She was then sent to Queenwood. Footnote here, I, I love this school, Queenwood. Something that Virginia Woolf would have had a terrific time with. Uh, there she bridled at the routine, but found consolation in the Elizabethan dramatists. Her holidays were spent exploring Cornwall and the islands, yes. The outbreak of World War I forced her to give up the study of archaeology. She turned to writing. She had two marriages of convenience. The first was to the young American writer Robert McAlman. Uh, footnote here, she states over and over in this memoir that her great love affair was with America. She saw America as the future, the place where... The place where freedom, where everything that she dreamed of would happen. I guess that's why I find this book so heartbreaking. Anyway, together with Robert McAlman, she founded Contact Publishing. There she financed and supported the publication of Ernest Hemingway's first collection of stories, Gertrude Stein's The Making of Americans, novels of Dorothy Richardson, the work of numerous modern writers in Paris and the U.S., the second marriage was to Kenneth McPherson, a Scottish author and film critic, with whom she produced films, including uh, Borderline, which starred Paul Robeson. She published an influential journal titled Close Up, which was devoted to the art and social impact of the cinema. I guess she got it, definitely she got it. Oh. <laughs> There's a very funny bit here. I hope I have time to read it when she first encounters Freud, yes. Breyer spent the 1920s and 30s in Paris and Berlin, traveling with her longtime companion, the poet H.D. They established a home in Switzerland. She was forced to leave Switzerland in 1940, returning to England after several years spent assisting over 100 German and Austrian refugees to safety. She lived through the Blitz in London with H.D. She returned to Switzerland following the war. The next three decades were filled with an outpouring of literary activity, during which she wrote three memoirs, a dozen novels. Uh, the novel that Paris Press has decided to republish in conjunction with this memoir is the one called... The Player's Boy. I've been reading at that one this week, and it's, as I say, so esoteric. It, it's uh, written uh, as if she were there. She, she really has this trick of putting herself down into history, but I keep having to look up everything as I go along because she wants you to hear them as they spoke then. Anyway, uh, she died in Switzerland in 1983, now, she's been mostly unknown for nearly 30 years. How could that be? How can that be? This intro goes on to talk about her lifelike evocations of the past, the echoes of history in our time, as well as in the words of her friend Marion Moore, quote, her undeceived eye for beauty and her passion for 
for moral beauty. <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know if she'd like that. As uh, She says here she, she objected to being called an ethical Jewess by Gertrude Stein. An ethical Jewess. I wonder what that, what that could possibly mean. Let's see. Uh, she does strike me as a, what would we call that, a uh, bit of a stolid woman. She was such a an athlete, such a climber. And I see her in what we call today sensible shoes. She was not a uh, romantic type. Um, she had a romantic soul. But uh, let's see. She writes that HD, that is Hilda, Hilda's circle, she writes, did not like me at all. They said that I was an unmannerly cub who stared and never spoke. They advised her to get rid of me as soon as possible. Ezra Pound boasted, however, that if he could see me alone, he could manage me with ease. I knew nothing about this conversation, but one day, when H.D. was out, the bell rang and I found him at the door. He strolled in, his velvet jacket a shade darker than his beard, sat on the couch. I had already privately christened him the Leopard, and I did not share the circle's enthusiasm for his poetry. It seemed to me then, as it does today, to lack originality and to consist, rather, of often superb translations. In those London days, he reminded me of a jester strolling round a crusader's camp with an old song and the newest gossip on his lips. <laughs> Footnote here, yes. Uh, village gossip. That was exactly what Gertrude Stein thought of the fellow of Ezra Pound. She would say, he is a village explainer, which is all very well if you are a village, but if not, not. <laughs> anyway, she goes on to say that Ezra settled himself comfortably against the cushions and remarked, as if he had been a lecturer, I have just been reading an account written in the 11th century about a fight between Harold the Saxon and a Danish chief on the east coast of England. I cannot trace the exact spot, but the place is immaterial. They go on fencing in this silly way uh, about this story, uh, historical story, and she tries to act impressed, uh, but of course she knows more about it than he does. She's trying to be polite. Uh, Finally, uh, Ezra Pound says, And what can I do to help you? And Briar answers, I want to go to America. America? Why America? Why not all? Because America is the hope of the world, Ezra says. But the women's clubs! Need I come in contact with them? Ezra Pound says, I fear being European, you do not know the institution. Once a week, the ladies of America meet to obtain culture and discuss their neighbors and their children. They have lectures on eugenics, on racine, and what to do if bitten by a dog presumed insane. Well, says Briar, should I have to meet them? Why go to America otherwise? She says, because the poets I admire are American. H.D., Marion Moore, and then remembering hastily to be polite, I said, oh, and yourself. He got up swiftly and said, 
Rather, uh, we are refugees from the West, put his arm around my shoulders. It was a most uncomfortable position. An Elizabethan would have screamed or snatched up a dagger, but I decided to be wary and calm. Nice hair, nice hair. He pecked chastely at my cheek. I wondered what in the world I was supposed to do and decided to gaze at him abstractedly and in silence. We stared at each other for what seemed a very long time, and then he asked with some solemnity, Have you no chocolates? I don't think so, I said, but it gave me an excuse to break away and look in various cupboards. Ah, oh, what a child you are, the leopard remarked, putting on his overcoat. When the awakening comes, you will have a different tale to tell me. Of course, he means her sexual awakening. There was another awkward pause. He patted my head and walked down the steps with his stick over his shoulder like a sword, and I thought how very odd I heard afterwards that his verdict on me was, Briar is impossible. <laughs> she goes on to write about making friends with Havelock Ellis. Do you remember he was the birth control um, specialist? Actually, she had a wonderful and affectionate relationship with Havelock Ellis. That stuff fascinated me. Oh, there's so much. This is just... This is just an edible book. I'm so happy to have found something to read that doesn't um, bring me down again. Before I go off the air, I want to quickly, quickly mention, it is time for me to go, check out a documentary by Rosie Perez all about Puerto Rico.